Hey everyone, I'm Rob Lee, and this is Beloved Journal. Each week, I sit down with one of my friends as we discuss what it means to love and be loved. I'm not talking about romantic love, but the kind of love that leads us to empathy, compassion, and grace. Things our world desperately needs right now. Hey everyone, Rob Lee here for Beloved Journal. Uh, today it's my privilege to bring on the show Jack Jenkins. Jack is an award-winning journalist and the national reporter for the Religion News Service. He covers religion and politics and how those two realities intersect. He's also the author of the brand new book, and by brand new I mean released this week book, American Prophets, The Religious Roots of Progressive Politics and the Ongoing Fight for the Soul of the Country which was published by Harper One. Uh, you can find it wherever books are sold, and I highly recommend this book. Harper One and Jack were kind enough to send me a review copy, and I have really, really enjoyed reading it. Um, that's one of the perks of the work that I get to do, is get to read some of these books uh, as they are coming out brand new, and that is a great gift to me. So thank you, Harper One, and thank you, Jack. In addition to all that work that Jack does at, at Religion News Service, his stories and analysis uh, have been included in places like the Washington Post, the Atlantic, the Associated Press, the National Catholic Reporter, uh, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the New Yorker, CNN, MSNBC, and a Netflix docu-series. He earned his BA from Presbyterian College and a Master of Divinity from Harvard University, and if he has spare time, he plays the harmonica and the ukulele. Though with all the hard work he's doing, I doubt he has much time for that right now. Anyway, this was a wonderful conversation. I commend his book to you. I commend this podcast to you. I hope you find it meaningful. And if you like what you hear, please share it and tell someone about it. Let's listen in. Jack Jenkins, thank you so much for coming on Beloved Journal this week. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I am so grateful. And you have not been without work lately, which is a good thing for you. Uh, you've been rather busy uh, juggling both reporting for Religion News Service uh, and all that that entails. And then also yeah, you, you've got American Profits out. So tell me about that. Tell me about all you're doing right now. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's not a slow news time. Um, it's it's actually a, it's been a rough time for a lot of journalists, but that doesn't mean that it hasn't been a, uh, a time of, of, of low news content and the intersection of Religion and politics and pandemic has actually been um, bigger than you might initially imagine. You know, you had everything from um, activists, you know, progressive activists advocating for people who were disproportionately impacted by the pandemic to um, some folks who are, you know, um, declining, uh, refusing to close their um, churches and wanting to, you know, get back into them and in public worship as quickly as possible, which risks the spread of infection. And some of these people have been arrested and some of them are prominent supporters of Trump. And so there's just been a lot of going back and forth just in my day job to keep track of it all. Um, but yeah, as you know, meanwhile, I also have un, um, released my book, American Prophets, uh, The Religious Roots of Progressive Politics and the Ongoing Fight for the Soul of the Country. Um, that kind of digs into this sort of, you know, often unsung and unheard from, um, not necessarily because they aren't out there telling their own stories, but because, you know, journalists like myself aren't always reporting on the content that um, on the activism that they put into the world, these progressive faith based activists. So um, so I've been I've been doing both of those things at once, doing book work and journalism work uh, over the past couple of months. 
Well, well, Jack, let me ask you a little bit about what you were just talking about there, the idea that the progressive notion of, 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 of these prophets, I mean, some of the people that I have the privilege of knowing and you have gotten to know, um, I'm curious, why is it that progressive voices in the church especially are either silenced or not uplifted in our mainstream kind of understanding of what is going on in our world right now? So I think there's a few different overlapping reasons for that. One of them is that, um, you know, I think it actually speaks to a lot of the impact that the religious right has had on our public discourse. Um, the religious right has argued, you know, depending on how you define it, either from the turn of the last century um, or, or since at least the last three or four decades, that you know they have this kind of monopoly on the the conversation around religion in the public square, and there's often these. Um, kind of dismissive statements made about the Democratic Party and liberals by leaders of the religious right arguing that, you know, the Democratic Party and liberals are, are godless or you know, not truly Christian, as it were. And sometimes they've spoken very dismissively of progressive faith based activists, you know, implying that they don't truly share the same faith or that they're actually capitulating to culture. That was, that's been a longstanding critique in conservative um, political and religious circles, um, you know, lobbed against progressive people of faith. So I think there is some element to which that was that that campaign has been very successful, that the religious right takes up a lot of the oxygen when we start talking about the intersection of religion and politics. And so, you know, I think that 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 has embedded itself into our media narratives. I also think there has been some um, hesitancy within progressive circles to kind of, you know, really embrace progressive faith based activists and, you know, you know, liberal and um, left leaning uh, people of faith who, who really want to participate in the progressive coalition have sometimes run into t um, run into pushback, even from the federal progressives who are either wounded by religion, um, who are atheists or agnostics who really kind of um, reject this sort of incursion of faith. Not all atheists and agnostics do that, but some of them do. Or there are also people of faith who have long argued that the um, intersection of religion and politics is one that they are very sensitive to. And so while they might go to church on Sunday or they might go to temple, um, et cetera, what have you, they aren't as comfortable hearing a politician. Um, it's about religion from a podium. They're more comfortable with that in a pulpit. So there has been this tension in progressive circles as well. And then you have this element where it kind of reflects on the media itself. And I think that's a little complicated because part of that, you know, um, members of the media are people too. And so we might be influenced by all those um, internal debates and criticisms we just, I just mentioned. And then in addition to that, I do think that the religious left is distinctly different than the religious right. It is in many ways far more complicated and complex of an entity than the religious right is in terms of organizationally. Um, I think it's a big lift on the part of a reporter to have to learn all these different organizations that um, cohabitate within the religious left. You know, sometimes they only exist for a few years and they go away. And there's just a lot of learning. There's a big um, learning curve that that is asked of a religion reporter or just a politics reporter who might want to, you know, cover these sorts of um, these sort of progressive faith-based activists. And so I think that's one of the reasons that for the years that I've been covering this group, I have often been the only reporter in the room. Um, and I don't think that was because I was special. I think it's because I stumbled upon a story and that's something a reporter has always really liked to do is find a story and hope nobody else finds it. So I think it's a complicated mixture of things that have led to this group kind of being undercovered when it comes to American politics, political reporting. 
So, so, well, let me ask you about that, because the first time we met, you were actually covering a story about me. Uh, it was <laughs> at the Festival of Homiletics that we knew kind of of each other, I think, before then. Uh, one of the yeah. things that had come to mind in our conversation since then and what I've seen you tweeting out and posting about has been the lack of religious questions or even a religion reporter uh, at the White House press briefings. Uh, it, it seems to be strangely absent from what we're talking about right now in a place where it should seem strangely, it should be present in a sense. Like if, if we, you know, counted it all out, it seems like this is the time when we would need those questions asked the most. Uh, so, so what do you make of that? Yeah, I think this has been a, a frustration for many of my fellow religion reporters. If, if you know, journalists don't traditionally engage in advocacy, but we are advocates for ourselves. Right, right, of and course. So, yeah. um, and so the, you know, the idea that so many outlets have cut their religion reporters over the last few years or you know, haven't invested in them at all um, has been a trend that we've seen continue uh, more than we would like. And I think I think honestly, that's just a mistake on the part of a lot of major outlets. I mean, it's the Washington Post is an interesting exception among like like very large mainstream um, outlets in that they have three reporters dedicated to religion. But at present, you know, the New York Times has one. Um, you know, CNN has a, has a religion editor, and you know, these are the problems I think from the perspective of understanding the American experiment right now. Like you said, it's it's a it's a problem that it took so long. For there to be a religion reporter in um, the White House press briefing that wasn't attached to a specifically or explicitly religious outlet asking questions of the president, it's a problem that you know you ha that there are a lot of the stories about you know faith groups that have continued to gather where we've seen a lot of the gap um, the spread of the virus over the last few weeks that that took a while for a lot of outlets to report because they didn't have dedicated religion reporters and I think you know you have seen some some people learn from that I mean at the, um, the the editor in chief of the New York Times over the last couple of years actually said that religion is one of the things that they think they missed in the 2016 election. So that's why they've dedicated they've dedicated resources to trying to hire more than one since then. Um, but I think this is just a growing edge in the part of the media that they that there just may be a, um, a, a vacuum. Um, in this space of religion that I think people think they can cover it another way. They think that someone who might moonlight as a religion reporter, that they don't have to dedicate full resources to it. And what we religion reporters have long said is that that's a mistake. You're going to miss stories or you're going to get them wrong. And it's just something that I think the journalism world really needs to work on. Well, and I think, too, in the essence of journalism, uh, my wife who produces this podcast, she has her journalism degree and did her bit for King and Country but I think, too, about, like, you know, this is a moment in time, whether it's 2016 or 2020 with the election coming up, where we need those questions answered, not only for the sake of people of faith, but for the greater good, right? Like, I think that's something that's really going to, you know, had, I, I wish, uh, you know, either Secretary Clinton's campaign or her people who were covering her talked about her relationship to the United Methodist Church. I wish in 2008 that, you know, the, the, the United Church of Christ scandal with Barack Obama would not have become a scandal. And it wouldn't be a scandal now as much because we are much more right. contextualized. So it requires that context that sometimes journalists offer. And I think you're doing a good job of that, but I also think we have more work to do. Agreed. 100% agreed. I think it's it's one of those things where 
Um, one of the benefits of being a religion reporter is that you know I get to be an, an everything reporter. I get to touch on virtually every topic, culture, economics, sports, music, and politics, you name it. Religion touches those things. And I think that is is an asset to the religion reporter, but it means that the, the elements of religion that are embedded in all these different sectors of our society don't get exposed or highlighted by journalists. And, and you know, reporters are supposed to expose the truth of, um, of, of society. We're supposed to be able to dig in and, and unearth the parts of the story that are happening on the ground that you know, maybe, you know, if you don't send a reporter in there, we won't get recognized. And I just think, like you said, like a lot of those religious questions, a lot of those religious stories just go untold because no one is being asked to report on them. Well, and, and I'll, I'll say this too. I think, you know, another time that we encountered each other kind of on the road and in the wild was at the Wild Goose Festival last year. And I'm curious if you were like me. We were, I remember this scene very well. We were standing there with uh, William Barber, uh, with Marianne Williamson, and a host of other people who were leading the progressive movement. It was, and it was you and me talking there. And I think, and I, I know you covered this a little bit, but it was amazing to see the, just just those people in the room together you know i thought that have you had moments like that where you've just been oh my gosh i'm here this is happening this is real life you know like this is the moment that people will talk about down the line in books as that was a moment that comes up in your book yes i mean I, I, as you know like that is that specific moment of me interviewing marianne williamson while she's sitting in a golf cart um before she gets on stage to follow barbara and then kind of that menagerie of, of people in that same place. I mean, I wasn't the only reporter there, but I was, you know, I mean, Mike, one of my colleagues from the Religion News Service was also there and there was a podcaster. But to my knowledge, that was about it. And so it is one of those things where um, I think what's been interesting about doing the kind of reporting I'm, I've done, including for the book, is I'm, I'm, ending, I'm ending up in these places where I'm like, this is amazing. Like, this is this is a story, but it just doesn't attract the same kind of attention. I had a similar feeling when I was in, there's a chapter I, uh, in which I cover kind of um, the environmentalism movement within faith sectors. And I kind of dig into kind of um, indigenous demonstrators uh, who often go by the title protectors in Standing Rock, but also in Hawaii. And I flew out to Hawaii for to, to um, go and learn from these activists that were um, also identified as protectors that were on Mauna Kea protesting against a, a telescope that was going to be erected on top of uh, a mountain that they deem sacred. And I'm sitting there at this one point and I'm talking to this, um, this scholar of religion who identified as, as a kapuna, which is this elder among this encampment of protesters. And, um, and she starts talking to me about, uh, you know, the, the, how much she cares about this demonstration and as she's talking to me behind her, people gathered for one of the several daily prayers. It was all these different indigenous activists that gathered on the street. And the men, there was these, you know, these, these trumpets that get blown, these horns that get blown and they begin um, chanting. And this woman is telling me how important this is to her and tears start rolling down her cheeks about how this, she sees this as a sacred duty. And then she has to stop and say, I'm sorry, I have to go pray. And this woman gets up and stands there and I'm looking at this this array of activists and demonstrators and this is an explicit moment of the intersection of faith and politics where the the faith held by these demonstrators um, is so deeply held that they they want to you know put their you know put their bodies on the line and risk arrest 
every day for weeks on end to help protect this space and protect their environment. And no one's covering this as a religion story. And it, it is one of those things where it boggled my mind that I was in this space that where I was one of the few reporters there to cover it. Now, to be clear, that protest got a lot of press, you know, in Hawaii. But, you know, it shouldn't have taken someone like me who had to go out there and forget to put on sunscreen and got horrifically sunburned the first two days that I was there walking around the mountain um, to kind of grab that story. And, you know, I felt similarly at various other stages of reporting um, over the last few years. I mean, I remember similarly when I was down in the um, along the U.S.-Mexico border back in 2014, 2015, during what we then called the child migrant crisis. And the I, I went with a colleague of mine for Think Progress, where I was working at the time, um, SUC Lee, and she and I, she's an immigration reporter, and so we would go to these different um, kind of activist spaces to kind of un uncover what was happening along the border. And it just turned out one of the reasons they sent me was that a lot of this intersected with religious organizations. And there was this one religious organization along the border that was run by a Catholic nun um, that was working with Catholic charities that would take in these families after they had walked, you know, 1500 miles to get the U.S.-Mexico border when they, when they were released by um, Customs and Border Protection and Border Patrol. They were allowed to come into these spaces where they would give them um, clothing and shoes. And, and when they would arrive, these um, volunteer workers in the space would erupt in applause and tears would stream down everybody's cheeks. And then we turned around and looked outside and uh, all of these politicians had arrived to kind of, I guess, get photo shoots. And they included Ted Cruz and Glenn Beck and several other congressmen. And there was basically the Southern Baptist Press and like one other reporter and then me and my colleague. And it felt like this really unusual and interesting moment of looking at the American experiment um, and kind of like how we're trying to, to, you know, how faith groups are trying to you know, help the needy from their perspective and those who are vulnerable and how that intersects with politics. And again, it was one of those moments like you talked about, I'm like, this is crazy that I'm in this moment and being able to witness this and have the privilege of being a journalist to bear witness to these moments. But it, it does kind of hit you several times that, you know, it, in the same moment where you have that that recognition of awe, you simultaneously um, journalists often have that moment of like, OK, you're, you're definitely working now because it's important that you try to get this right. Um, so there's been a lot of moments like that over the reporting for this book, as well as just kind of a lot of the reporting that led up to its creation. Well, let me let me ask you that on that note of like bearing witness you are one of those people, you're you're an overachiever if I've ever met one, if I may say so myself. I mean, you went to Harvard, you know, you've got a great great pedigree and a great education, and, and that doesn't make someone who they are, but it does help color in the facts. And you've written a book, you've done all this stuff, you report for the Religion News Service. But deep down, Jack Jenkins, do you have hope for the future of the American experiment? So this is this is a I love that you asked this question. Um, also, from one overachiever to another, I'm glad right. that you know we can recognize ourselves in that regard. I, I think that one of the cool things about religion is that um, in reporting on religion is that I've had the experience of reporting on some of the worst things that humanity does. Um, you know, and, and that includes you know a third of my beat at the Religion News Service is reporting specifically on Catholicism. And then when I right after I got there at RNS, the we had the resurgence of dialogue around the Catholic sex abuse crisis. And, you know, that reporting is is really rough. You're 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 talking about people of faith and, and, and faith leaders who have done such horrendous things or you know covered up such horrendous things that 
you know, it's some of the worst things that human beings can do to one another. But then in the same week, I will cover faith-based advocates or just people of faith doing things like I saw along the U.S.-Mexico border and welcoming the stranger. I, I get to cover um, these faith communities who are rushing to help those in need every day as best as they know how. And that transcends politics, that transcends even religious tradition. But you know, what that does to you as a reporter is it does make you more cynical. It does make you recognize the potential for, for, for you know, wrongdoing and what many would call evil is very real um, in and around in religion and, in and, in and definitely within uh, the greater you know, American uh, you know, experiment and population. But you also cannot ignore that there are these hopeful pieces that exist no matter what, often in tandem with those evil pieces, um, that you're able to see people striving to be better. I mean, that's why, you know, for me, one of the, I, I write that, I have a chapter in the book dedicated to unpacking what happened in Ferguson and, um, and in Charlottesville. And one of the reasons I really kind of sunk into writing about Charlottesville was that one of the things that went unreported from that day largely was that there were a large cadre of faith leaders who had showed up to stare down white supremacists and sing hymns of hope and love in the midst of such a hateful scuffle. And in that horrific, tragic day, I think it was so powerful for me to hear that when that car, that, you know, driven by a white supremacists, you know, mowed down so many of those people, um, that it was clergy and other regular folks who ran down there and made a human wall to protect the fallen and were already there caring for those who were despondent and lost. And I think that's the dynamic I run into all the time in my reporting is that, you know, you, you're, you're, not a, you're not really allowed to give up hope because you keep running into it even when you think all is lost. And so I think, you know, our country has gone through some pretty rough times recently. It's also gone through some pretty rough times throughout its history. Um, and, you know, if I, if I from where, where I, I sit, I keep seeing those moments of hope every day. And as long as those are there, I still have hope for the American experiment. So, so, so let's talk about Charlottesville for a second. You know, I think that's something that um, stands in my mind right now and has for the past two and a half years. Yeah. Um, it, it certainly catapulted me to a different existence in terms of what I do and how I do it. Mm -hmm. It's one of those events, I think, that for many of us, it, you know, whether you're, you're Jack or Rob or anybody, it kind of is ingrained in your memory, kind of like 9-11, kind of like this pandemic will be, kind of like the, yep. the, the, the Kennedy assassination or the Challenger explosion or, or whatever it is. Absolutely. You know, if we can if we can kind of peel back the layers of what's going on in the pandemic, what will be remembered about this particular moment in our history like it was for not just the, not just the noise of what, you know, don't drink bleach, but what will be the, <laughs> what will be the story that will come out of this that we will cling to as a human population? Yeah. Um, you know, the story of the pandemic, I think is going to be, uh, I, I will, I will caveat this by saying, I do think, What's unique about this pandemic, more so than any other thing in my lifetime, is that, I mean, almost every single country outside of a couple that, you know, 
there's there's questions about why they're not reporting any um, illnesses or deaths and a a few Pacific islands has been impacted by this. And so it's going to be a share. It's a shared experience around the entire planet. And that's relatively rare in human history. And so in, in some at some level, the story of the pandemic will be you know, 8 billion stories. It will be so, um, so many shared experiences that are also very particular and contextualized to specific places. That having been said, I think what's been really interesting to me and what I've seen in my own sheltering in place and then, you know, um, socially distanced walks around the um, neighborhoods is, and then in my reporting, is how fascinating it is that, that people are trying and continuing to try to do good work in the midst of you know a, a time period where they where they can't even physically touch other people without risking contracting a disease or spreading a deadly disease, and so you see these moments where you know folks are churches banding together to make masks, for instance, or you know seeing how faith groups have now sort of taking up collections um, to try to give uh, masks and um, and hand sanitizer to people who are incarcerated or people who are ill and, 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 and lower income communities. You see these people who are plastering onto their doors in um, California, driving around the LA capital there, a, a, an iteration of the Poor People's Campaign, a faith-led um, protest movement, driving around that capital with signs that read, you know, like take care of those who, are in, who can't afford rent. You know, it's still advocating while, while socially distanced in a car for those who who, who have difficulty um, having their voice heard by the people in power. And I do think one of the things that we will look back on is all the ways that we have um, strived to help each other and be good neighbors in the midst of a time that's really scary and really difficult for a lot of people for a lot of complicated reasons. Um, I think it's been kind of fascinating to watch as many, you know, while we, well, what gets a lot of attention are those protests, you know, trying to end the stay at home orders and stuff like that. The everyday stories that I see um, that we get to report on are just a lot of people doing their best to be as good of neighbors as they can be and to reconnect with those that they care about. Um, and so I think that that I hope will be what, you know, I, I don't think this this is we're just at the beginning stages of this process. I think right, it looks right. like it might last for a long time. But at this stage, I do think there's there's far more compassion um, that came out of this moment than than division than even I would have expected. Well, Jack, let me ask you this. Looking ahead, we've looked kind of back, and we're trying to make the present the, the past, because I think we all want to get out of it uh, <laughs> in some way or another. You know, if you look forward 50, 60 years from now, and you're looking down uh, the tube, and you see a church, a synagogue, a mosque, what do you see? Hmm. Oh, wow, that's an excellent question. Um, I've happened this a little bit in my final chapter for the book, the the future of faith, and I think you know there is there's a few different things impacting that at once. There is this um, overarching theory that the United States will become more secular, that many people will disaffiliate with religion. That doesn't mean they're necessarily a religious or atheist or agnostic, but they might not attach themselves to a faith community as they once did. Although apparently, for the record, there's been a couple of pol- pieces of polling in the last few months that says that you know the 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 rise of the religiously unaffiliated has actually started to plateau so it might be you know like a a slower more gradual change than we expected 
But if it were to continue on the trends that it that it was heading on and the trajectory that it was heading on in the last couple of years, where we would expect that some of these communities might be smaller or more concentrated. But what I do think has been interesting to see is that for a lot of communities, particularly the ones I chronicle in my book, but also just like a lot of ones that are just everyday communities, because of all that the United States has been through and um, and it is going through right now and will likely continue to go through, the story of these faith communities often is one that overlaps with questions about social justice and questions about standing up for um, the needy. Like that these narratives that are usually reserved for activist circles just kind of become part of how the church identifies. And so that impacts how people worship. That impacts how they see the divine. So I would expect, you know, 50 years down the line, we would see a lot of churches who, you know, might once have been these sort of staple, say, suburbanite churches that are sometimes, you know, unfairly, but, you know, labeled as these sorts of, you know, stale and, and uh, you know, traditional communities um, might be a little more involved in the, the local civic uh, questions of their communities, as well as in national political um, debates, because when you have gatherings of people, there you have civic discussion. And so I really do think the impact of these of this era, of the Trump era, um, and of the, this pandemic era, will leave this legacy that will become the, the, the identity of a lot of faith communities. I think you know, I don't see the, the old elements of worship going away anytime soon. There will still be prayer. There will still be singing. There will still be preaching. Um, there will still be any number of spiritual exercises. But at the end of the day, the words we um, wrap around those, the, the our, our hermeneutic, as it were, I think will alter a little bit because that's what history does. That's what events do. They change the way we see ourselves and maybe expose a little bit more about how we see the divine. So I expect things to be just as the churches of today were impacted by the civil rights movement and that those churches were impacted by the labor movement and those churches of the labor movement were impacted by the abolitionist movement. So too will the churches 50 years from now be impacted by the activism and the stories that come out of today. Well, that means that we have work to do, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. And I will say this before I let you go. Um, I've been ending or starting. I've been always asking this question. Um, so you get to join Sam Wells and Beto O'Rourke and tell us what you're binging on Netflix in your spare time uh, so that we can all have an extra show to watch. What are you watching right now, Jack? So this is this. I, I, I will admit something. You're the first person for me to admit this to publicly. So I am a Star Wars person. I'm a fanatic Star Wars fan, have been my whole life, always. And I have always been one of those people that kind of like shunned the Star Trek. I was like, oh, that's just some heady nonsense you know like I, it doesn't ha have enough lightsabers for me um but two things happened one the show picard came out and i was like all right sir patrick stewart i'm gonna watch him so i binged all of picard and then as a result i noticed that on netflix there is this star trek voyager series and and i was like okay i'll give it a try and as it turns out it became this addicting show to have on in the background because one the formula is that every episode there's a problem and the people on the ship fix it and they all work together to fix it which is an intoxicating idea in 2020 um but then in addition to that it's like really ahead of its time in terms of i mean it's a 90 show and, right, you know, right. yeah, it yeah. representation the kind of questions it was raising at the time i mean it was it, it was significantly more progressive than I would have expected it to be, given the era in which it um, emerged. And so, and and I do think again, it's that 
the the whole idea of the federation, you know, the the, the politi- socio political um, galactic context in which Star Trek is set, uh, is this group of people from all over the all over the galaxy that work together to solve problems, and that right now is just this deep comforting and soothing thing for me to watch in the background well when you want when you start watching um next generation which is my favorite show and i'm watching the original <laughs> series right now and then we had chase right. masterson who watched deep who was on deep space nine she was on this show for the first episode okay. anyway long story short one of the interesting things about star trek the next generation is as you watch this and it's in voyager 2 there's some real like end of the cold war like 90s themes that you can pick out and you're like oh my gosh this is like they're talking about ending barriers and tearing down walls of the galaxy i'm like i see what you guys are doing so (laughs) anyway jack jenkins yeah yeah it's so it's it's everything we do is interconnected and everything we do is deeply political whether we like it or not i think you know even down to our television shows um agreed and so we will wish you the best on your voyager journey Uh, it gets really good towards the end too uh, once you get to the, how far are you in? So uh, seven of nine just showed up. Oh right? my so gosh! We're you, just... Okay, you've got some time. You'll 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 <laughs> you'll be good. <laughs> good to know. Well, thank you know, so much, that's... Jack. No, thank you so much for having me. Oh my gosh, um, this yeah. has been really great. This has been fun. And I guess but... I guess live yeah, long and we... prosper. Yeah, live long and prosper. <laughs> Before I let you go, where can we find you? Where's a good? I should. I, I'm so distracted by the Star Trek that I should ask you no, where totally can we find you. Uh, so you can find me. My my reporting shows up at religionnews.com. We're a wire, so sometimes our stuff gets published other places or often. But you know, you can find my reporting on religionnews.com, or you can follow me on Twitter at Jack M Jenkins. Um, that's my Twitter handle, Jack M Jenkins. If you want to follow me there, uh, and 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 then all of those will link back to my website if you want to jump on my my email list or something like that. And you've got to buy his book, American Prophets: The Religious Roots of Progressive Politics and the Ongoing Fight for the Soul of the Country. That's a nice subtitle. Uh, thank you thank so you. much, Jack, and I hope you have a good day. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. Beloved Journal is produced by Stephanie Lee and hosted by Rob Lee. Our theme music is by Mipso, the best band in the world. Connect with us on belovedjournal.com, and if you like what you heard, tell someone about it.